Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. A blessed Easter season to all of you this Friday, June the 10th, as the light of Jesus shines on us from Genesis chapter 14. It is a time where we see Abram and Lot back together, but not in a good way. We see an interaction between the king, Melchizedek, and also the priest, which ironically is going to point us to something further when we get to the New Testament. And as we hear all of this, we I heard it compared to the Super Bowl of Nations. It was a struggle between all the powerful nations. These were the nations of the Mesopotamia area where they were just, everything is, is going great. They have all this wealth and all these good things happening, but yet they do not get along. So what does this mean? What does it mean for us? We'll find out today. So open up your Bibles, put on your Christ goggles for the gifts are ready, ready for you. Thank you to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. Today is going to be a different day. Never done this. This is 18 months into my time as host of Thy Strong Word, and today our guest was not able to be with us. So I'm going to go at this solo. You know, you'll listen on the radio sometimes. You hear that one guy just talks the whole time. Well, that's going to be today. But I'm excited because as we are looking at Genesis chapter 14, there is much when it is a genealogy of sorts. It's a lot of names that are hard to pronounce, so forgive me now. But also, we are able to look at the realities of then and the realities of today. Now, going back to me and myself a little bit, I always ask our guests, you know, hey, welcome and what's happening for you? For me, right now, the ministry at Messiah is, is going well. Uh, many transitions that are happening here in our congregation, but also at the same time, we get to summer months, Minnesotans run away to the lake. They don't tell you what lake it is. Sometimes I pessimistically think it's because they don't want us to visit them at the lake. And part of it is just an easy way instead of trying to describe what lake you're going to by just saying, I'm going to the lake. So we're right in the heat of that. It's getting a little warmer. We have our two months of uh, no snow threat at this point in our time. And also, we are just enjoying God's creation. For me and my family, we are going to Florida this next week, which I'm excited about, and be able to spend time together as a family. So just a reminder for you and our listeners, uh, for all of our listeners, excuse me, is to take that time. Take that time as a family to take that vacation, cut yourself off from whatever might distract you. Hopefully, you, and I would encourage you to do this, when you do go on vacation, spend some time, open up the scriptures. I'm not sure if you will look up Genesis 14 in order to open up the scriptures together as a family, but try to find a way that you can join together in prayer the word, and also worship. When you are on vacation, find a, a church. You know, I would encourage you to find an LCMS church. If you go to lcms.org, you'll be able to find the find the church page on there on that website, lcms.org, and receive the gifts and worship on vacation. It makes a big difference. I've noticed that. I love it because I get to sit with my family, you know, never usually able to do that. So I'm looking forward to that as well. So as you look forward, um, we look back and give thanks to our Lord that he sustained his people in the past, and he will continue to do so today. So let us begin our time in prayer. 
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. As we hear from Genesis chapter 14 today, we see of the sinfulness and the battles that happen in this broken world. It happened among these nations. It happened among these four kings. And Lord, it happens in our own world. Which is why today we pray for the nations in Russia and Ukraine, the battles that are happening around the world that never makes the news, and the battles that happen on our streets, in our, our homes, and other places in our own country, in our own communities, and we ask for peace. As we see here today, you are the one who sustains your people. We ask that you would sustain us, that your Holy Spirit would guide us, and that we will see Christ. And we ask all this through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. If you have any questions concerning our text today, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. We're going to be beginning today by reading all of Genesis 14. And I'll be coming back and looking at different sections of it. One, because I don't want to read all those names again, (laughs) but it is something also for us to be able to reflect on these words and to see what's the main um, reality. That one thing I really enjoy and I want you to think about is that when we look at the world, we'll say, oh my gosh, things are getting worse. Well, in some ways that might be true, as, as it tells us that before Christ returns, things will get worse. But also to realize that there's nothing new under the sun, that the battles and the wars that happened then are the battles and wars that have happened today. In some ways, they're worse in those days than they are today. And so we, we, we remind ourselves there's nothing new. This is a broken world, and we where do we go? The same source of our hope, which is the Lord, <laughs> our Lord in Christ. The Messiah they hope for is a Messiah that we have seen and that we believe in. Not, not seen, well, seen in the sense of sacramentally, but not seen, but know that he has come and become flesh on this earth. So their hope is our hope, and our hope is, is ultimately pointing us to Christ and eternity with him. So let's begin in Genesis chapter 14. As we'll be reading from the English Standard Version, we hear the word of our Lord. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedalamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemabar king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Kedalaomer, but in the thirtieth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedalaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in the Asherath of Karnaim, and Zizim and Ham Ham and Ammon in Shavakarathim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran and the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim, 
with Kedalaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Armraphel, king of Shinar, and Aria, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, all the provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abraham's, Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Askel and Anor. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that the kingsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went to pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them at Haba, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and all brought back his kinsmen, Lot with his possessions, and the women and all the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedalaomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord Yahweh, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young man have eaten and share the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskal, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of our Lord as we hear from Genesis chapter 14. Now, if we go back to chapter 13, we remember how it was Abram and Lot who had separated. One went one direction, and the other one went the other. And as it was done, it was obvious for Lot to to look at that land to the right and for him to say, I like that place. I want to go there. And ironically, that is the place where there was a whole lot more issues. The invading kings met the coalition of the five kings from the region that Lot had chosen. It is, it is an interesting reality that although it looked really nice, it was full of sin, full of issues, and now it all came to a head. Because we see these kings, um, for example, Amraphel, Shinar, Kedalaomer, and Tidal. And all of them were ones that were ready to fight. <laughs> they, were, they were ready to go back and forth as much as they possibly could. And we realize how we all want to play, uh, we want to lay claim to our own areas. And if we feel like we're being, uh, uh, there being problems, they're going to fight back. And we see this all lay a hold and all come to a head because we want to make sure that that's our area. Don't mess with my area. And that's exactly what was happening. 
when they made war um, with Sodom and Gomorrah, um, Adma and Zeboim and Bela, it is, it is something that we see all the time, that the battle lines have been drawn and there would be battles. And it was back and forth, back and forth, as we see all the way to verse 12. And it really is something you're kind of, why are they keep highlighting this? But it's that area where you have continuous fighting, even till today. And why is that? Just because of sin. <laughs> and there's that battle, that reality of all of us wanting to lay claim. And this is where we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, peace, patience, joy, that we are able to, one, respect our neighbors. And this is why the Lord tells us to, you know, to, to love our neighbors and to love the Lord as a reflection when we love our neighbors, a reflection of the love that God has given to us. And when we lose sight of that, this is what happens. And it's an unfortunate reality for us. We also pray for our military, for our government, as they try to keep peace. It doesn't require someone to be a Christian in order to keep peace, but it is something that we continually pray for, for our own country and for those around the world. And so we see it full bore. Not only do they attack one another, but then they'll turn back and attack again. Whether it's on the north end of the Salt Sea, whether it's more on the south end, which is that region. And I would encourage you to find a map. Look up online, map of Genesis chapter 14. Because it does extend from that Salt Sea, which is you know just uh, uh, around there with Jerusalem, just south of there, the Jordan River. And you go south into there, almost gets into Egypt, all the people who are involved within these battles. And it's something that's very important because if you were to go there today, you would see those lines have changed many, many times throughout history. And here they are fighting once again. It seems like there is a lot of alliances as well. That you look at the alliances that you'll see in Europe, for example, and we'll see a lot of, of saying, well, they're with us, they're with us, they're with us, and they're not with us. And the back and forth, the political nature of all of it, which is once again why we continually pray for our leaders. And I want to turn your attention to verse 10. Now the valley of the Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. It was interesting to me because sometimes these bitumen pits are called tar pits because they're basically crude oil seeping through the earth's crust and, and coming up through this. You know, it reminds me of uh, uh, the Beverly Hillbillies, you know, that he shoots in the gun and all of a sudden there's oil that comes up out of, those, out of those hills and they have all this money. But these tar pits are something that you would not want to fall into. Uh, because when you'd fall into them, you can't get out. There's a number of pictures that I saw online of animals that would fall in. It, it seems like kind of a form of quicksand, if you will, that they would fall in, and it was just their, their, their sure death when they fell into this. And so they, they fell into this, and, and the rest fled to the hill country. So it was Sodom and Gomorrah, 
These people that that Lot had decided to be part of. Be careful who you hang out with. Lot, who we believe to be a faithful man, goes to this unfaithful area, which we're going to find out more about later on in Genesis. And it is obvious that nothing is going well. They're losing the battle. They are being taken over by the enemies. They even fall into bitumen pits. And now it is seems like there is no hope. And in verse 12, it tells us, excuse me, 11 and 12, that the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, that they were, they were down and out, everything was taken, and they took Lot, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. All of this becomes real because now they have family. <laughs> and and they, this, this is where Abram becomes a part of the situation. And it makes me realize a little bit as, when we think about family, we think about us, each other as Christians. The first thing is this. Who do you hang out with? You know, in First First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, it talks about evil company corrupts good habits. You know, evil does not make good habits. This is from First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. It's a good reminder for us is Lot goes there and this is not a good crowd to be with. So what does that mean for you and me? Who am I around? Are they going to be ones that lift me up and bring fruitfulness in the word? Or are they going to keep me away from the word? And this is why I encourage you to pray for our young people, whether it be in high school or in college, um, wherever they may be, is because it can all it takes is a few bad eggs and all of a sudden you are no longer thinking that Christianity is what you need. A few friends that don't go to church and all of a sudden you don't go to church. And for me, this is a little bit tricky for me because throughout high school and college, I just always went to church. And I'm not saying that I always went every single Sunday, but most Sundays I did, partly because I wanted to be a pastor, but partly because that's just what I did. And I also had friends who didn't necessarily go with me, but they supported me in that. One particular individual was a, was a, was a Catholic, and he would go. He'd be up till 3 in the morning and still go to Mass in the morning. And so it's a good witness to me to remind us of who are we around. At the same time, we realize that evil is surrounding us all the day long. And it is evil that the Lord has sent his son to take on. We're pointed to that throughout this, uh, throughout this story. And we see how God intervenes in an almost impossible situation. It seems like that Lot is gone and he went his way. How could they ever get out of this situation? There's probably tar. There's probably oil on their feet. Um, these people are running. There's no more home. All their possessions are gone. Where is the hope? And this is where verse 13, it is Abram to the rescue. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who's living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskel and of Anor. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that the kingsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, it's interesting to me. Um, Abram was, you know, uh, had a, quite, a, quite a crowd with him. Uh, it is something that I'm looking at this, and he makes you realize how <laughs> that Abram was a wealthy man. It tells that he had 318 trained men in his household, which who knows how many of them there are. 
But we do know that in order for him to go and pursue in Dan, it would have been somewhere in upwards of over 100 miles to get there. And he divided the forces, uh, made sure that they were um, able to fight, be ready to take all of them. And in verse 15, he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hoba, north of Damascus. Now, this would have been 60 miles north of Dan. So you have these trained men, 318 of them. You have Abram, probably other people are joining them in this force. And they go even further, like, like we always know, 60 miles for us today is 60 miles much different there. Not only the terrain, but how they get around and all of this. So he goes up to Damascus and somehow they win. They win. They, they, they're victorious. I don't know. It doesn't really give us many details of how they win. But this goes back to other parts in scripture where it didn't seem like they would be able to win this, you know, this time. But the Lord was with them. They were victorious and brought back all the possessions, all the kingsmen, Lot with his possessions, and the women, and all the people. So, here it is. Sometimes we face situations, challenges, that we're not quite sure how this is all going to work out. Now, this is not trying to be a, a, trying to look at this and say, as they had the victory, we can have the victory. But we do have to remember that this is all in God's hands. That how is this going to work out? We're not exactly sure. But it is the Lord who made sure that Lot came back to his people. They were reunited and God was with his people. And this is something for us to remember in our own lives. That God is with you. That we see this impossible task of, of war and battles, not only in biblical times, but in our own. And that's where we lean on the Lord to trust in his grace that he will take care of his people. And so we see this with Lot, that Lot is now back with his family. And it should be interesting to see later on in life, you would think that, okay, he's seen the depth of issues. He's seen the depth of sin, of war. Maybe it'll work out better for Lot. But guess what? Lot is still a human being, <laughs> that, that Lot is still a person who's going to fall, who's going to fail. And that's exactly what we see throughout the Bible, is that it is God who is merciful upon those who are still going to sin, and that includes you. And I have to remember this in the church, is because our role as a church is to preach repentance and forgiveness in the name of Jesus. That this is the call that Jesus gives after he resurrected, Luke 24. And sometimes we think that when we preach that, that people are going to sin, we call out their sin, and then therefore they're just going to be just fine. Yeah, they, they, no more sinning than that one reality. But the reality is that there's going to be people, there are going to be people, including ourselves, that continually sin. What was required is repentance. As Jesus preached, as John the Baptist preached, as Jonah preached, as Peter preached. And that repentance is by the power of the Holy Spirit, a gift to his people to receive that forgiveness. And then we move forward seeking the Lord's sanctification upon us to live holy lives. And what happens? We sin again and we receive that blessed forgiveness on account of Jesus. And what that looks like is different for each person. 
but very important for us to realize that as Lot, you would think, now he's going to get it all figured out. Well, this is part of the reason why the Lord gives us the gift of patience, of peace, of joy, all of the kindness, as we know of the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5, is that although Lot was saved, it does not mean he no longer sinned. And although Abram, you know, can you imagine the, the, the conversation with Abram and, uh, and Lot at this stage? So, you glad you hung out with those guys? How about we come back to my house and let's, let's go here. The guilt that Lot would have had, much like when a father or a mother pick up their kids from a very bad situation. Not many words are needed to be said. But he was brought back into the fold because that's what God does for us. That when we are ones who maybe are hanging around the wrong crowd or making all those sins, uh, you know, Psalm 25, remember not the sins of my youth, but remember your steadfast mercy for me, as it says in Psalm 25. It is the Lord who does that for us, even though it might full well be that later on in life they would continue to fall away. So everything is restored. Everything seems, you know, happy among this family. And that's where we end in verse 16. But right now we need to take our break. We are studying Genesis chapter 14, and we'll be right back. On America's college campuses, doors are open to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. The number of international students studying at American schools has more than quadrupled over the past decade. For many of these young men and women, it's their first time living in a free society where they can ask questions about Christianity. You can help answer their questions. Go to lhfmissions.org and partner with the Lutheran Heritage Foundation to translate good Lutheran books into languages these students can read and understand. lhfmissions.org Welcome back. We are studying Genesis chapter 14, all by myself today, Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. As we're looking at chapter 14, it's important for us to remember all these details is to get a good map, a good map of biblical times, a good map. There's many different resources out there. Go to cph.org and to find different biblical maps that will be available to you because it is something that can be very confusing very quickly. So I encourage you, our listeners, to look up all these names if you're able to to look at the the, um, the historical realities of this, the kings that are there, but also not to lose heart because the story is, there's always more to the story and to always keep your Christ goggles on. So as you look at the first 16 verses, there's a transition in verse 17. And this transition is not only important for the time in Genesis, but it's also important for the time later on in Scripture, as you look at the book of Hebrews, for example, and other places as well. So a good reminder for us as we put on our Christ goggles is to keep in mind as we look at Genesis 14 that this will connect us to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7. And I encourage you to make sure that to open up your Bibles and to have a finger or put a marker in Hebrews chapter 7 because we're going to hear of a king and priest named Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a very short aspect of, of the scriptures. It's amazing how much 
the author to the Hebrews really pulls out a lot of meaning from this. But we do know that Melchizedek was a king and he was also a priest. So let's dig into Genesis chapter 15, like I said, or 14, and make sure that you open up your, uh, um, you put a marker or something along those lines in Hebrews chapter 7 because Scripture interprets Scripture and the Old Testament is connected to the New Testament on account of Jesus. And we'll find out more of that today. Verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Kedileomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shavah, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought up bread and wine. He was a priest of the God Most High. Now, first of all, we hear of the king of, of Sodom that comes to meet them. Why does he do that? I'm not exactly sure, but definitely there was a thanksgiving to be done there. Um, but the king of Sodom, it really, Bera means the son of evil. So this king, as we'll see later on, does not necessarily come into Sodom after everything had been destroyed and reinstitute a holy nation. He does not come in with the desires that his people would have peace and his people would have joy and they would go back to the Lord. Obviously, he had other realities in mind as he went to be king of this place. And the other person to meet him was Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So you have the son of evil and the king of righteousness. And the place that he's from is Salem. In contrast, Sodom means burning, as we know later on why that is that way. And so it, it, these, these are the areas and these are the people that are coming together, kind of like you know the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder. And, and you're kind of like, what is this all going to be? First of all, Melchizedek brings gifts. He probably brought those gifts out of faith, from faith that he brought these gifts to Abram. Bread and wine, which is a very common um, food to bring to a feast still today. I mean, if you go to a gathering, especially if you eat at a great Italian restaurant, you're going to have plenty of bread and you'll probably have plenty of wine that is being served during that time. So this man of peace excuse me, this man of righteousness from the town of peace brings these gifts and he is a priest of the Most High God. So it's kind of interesting because you'll hear this. is a priest and a king. Maybe you've heard something similar of a guy in the New Testament <laughs> that is there. But this priest and king comes to Abram. Verse 19, And he blessed him. He blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So right away we are able to see how Melchizedek, as a priest, is pointing people back to the Lord. It's very easy for people to, and we have this too, where something good happens, and we are very easily just led astray of saying, well, good thing that's over, and then we get done. But we need to practice these words. Thanks be to God. He comes together in celebration of food. Notice Melchizedek didn't say, I don't know if I have enough money for this. But he brought out the best of the best. He gives thanks to God and he blessed the Lord. Bless we the Lord, as we would say as Christian people. Blessed be Abram. And this is something good for us too is, thanks be to God for that person. And to the Lord Most High 
who has delivered us from the hands of the enemy. And how many times do you need to remember to give thanks when things go well? It's very easy to kind of fall away, <laughs> fall away from, from giving thanks to what the Lord has done for us. It's very easy for us to focus on the negatives. But here we see Melchizedek as that man who brought the, the, the righteousness of God, who brought the reality of God and filled these people's souls with an understanding of who God is. And this is something that's important for you to remember that that's the role of your pastor and other church workers at your congregation. I find it interesting that one of the the true joys that I have as a pastor is you go visit people when they're in time of struggle. A lot of times, if you were just to look from the outside, for example, if you're a family member and the pastor comes to visit, we can kind of think, well, it's not just nice that he came to visit. And it could be a situation where, The pastor comes and he just tells a few jokes and does a few things and then he leaves. Well, that's not the reason your pastor visited. That's that's why a friend visits, you know, or or your non-religious friend visits you. When the pastor comes, yes, there is small talk. Yes, there is maybe some jokes. Yes, there is some relational and thanksgiving that he has come. But the role of the pastor is to point us to word and prayer. Maybe the sacrament, as someone's in the hospital or in need. That is what is to be done. And so Melchizedek was doing his vocation as a priest, filling them with the gifts of God. You know, how do we not see bread and wine and not think about the Lord's Supper? I'm not making that one to one connection, but there's definitely that feast understanding, the future feast that we will have in eternity, but also the feast that we have now, and points them. To the Lord. Because how easy could it be for Abram to say, well, I did that. I did that. I, I saved Lot. I had 318 strong men. They've been working out. I, you know, I had the good strategy. I separated them. I went as far north as 60 miles north of Dan. I pursued them and I've had the victory. But no, Melchizedek is that person that says, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who's delivered your enemies into your hand. That's what we have to remember, is that the Lord will provide, and may we always give him the praise. Now, from there becomes a new situation in verse 20, at the end of verse 20, excuse me. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, this goes into what we understand to be one-tenth or a tithe. Now, he's very careful um, that he was very that what he does with this treasure that he had rescued from the hands of the eastern kings that he gave it away. How easy could it have been that he had gotten all those possessions back, Sodom and Gomorrah and all these things, and now he has. It's obvious he already had a lot of great wealth. Um, that he you know he had 318 men. With that he would have women. With that he would have probably a lot of land because how do you make sure that 318 men are working right? And as he looks at that, he then takes all of this and he gives 10% away. 10% is not a big deal when you have a dollar. You have a dollar, 10 cents, no big deal. But if you're making $100,000, boy, it's hard to give away 10000 If you're making a million, boy, that's hard to give $100,000 away, that's for sure. Now, what we want to make sure is that we don't see this as 
He did that for 10%. Therefore, you are required to do so. We see in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, it's very clear that we are to be generous, that we are to be joyful. Other parts, Romans chapter 16, that we are to be intentional in our giving. But it does not say 10% is required or else. But 10% is a good guide. I mean, it's good for us to be able to say, hmm, what can I give back to the Lord? Sometimes a tithe, as we will say today, is, is 20%. You know, if you were to look at the Old Testament laws, Leviticus, and looking at the temple and, and everything else, that people were giving upwards of 30% of everything in order to go back to the ministry of the tabernacle or to the temple. So if anything, 10% is the least amount you should give. But it is very clear that we are called to be generous. And the tithe that he gives is something he gives back to the Lord. Why he did this? Not really sure. Melchizedek was a priest. Um, He was given this obviously to the Lord. And when we give this, um, it isn't just so that that God would be, the ministry would continue that he gave, but he did it out of faith, knowing that when we give in faith, the Lord blesses his people. This is the first reference we have to a tithe um, to this point. And it's interesting to think, you know, how'd that all come about? Um, but it, it is there. We see it later on of the tithe. We see of Malachi chapter 3 speaks about the, the, the tithe and you will not rob God, you know. Uh, but, but, you know, that there's a lot of law there. Of course, generosity is law um, because we look to the gospel, the generous God who then gives to us. And therefore, we should be generous as well. But this tithe is just a good example for you. How can I be generous? Because generosity is not an option for Christian people. Generosity is who we are. How could you not look at the cross where Jesus is bleeding and dying and breathes his last breath and think, "Eh, I don't need to give that much, do I? Because by the power of the Holy Spirit, he will bless our generosity. Generosity to the poor, specifically to your church, and also as we look at our everyday life. Lord, help us to be generous. Now, this brings us back, and I want to go here now, to go to Hebrews chapter 7. So open up your Bibles, and as you look at Hebrews chapter 7, these words are very important, and I wanted to read through them because they are so, it's interesting, like I said, there's not much about Melchizedek in the Old Testament, but boy, does the author really hit home with this. So go to Hebrews chapter 7, and I'll be reading a major portion of this. For this Melchizedek, verse 1, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also the king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor the end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham and the patriarchs gave a tenth of the spoils. And those the descendants of Levi who received the priestly office and have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed them who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. 
In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in another case, by the one of whom is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For this, he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So there's a few points that, that the author is making. is first of all, that this king of righteousness is a priest and a king, which points us to the Son of God, who is the priest forever. We don't know anything about the lineage of Melchizedek. There's no Levites who are the, who are the priests that will, are to come of the 12 tribes, but there's no mention of them before this point. So here's this guy. We don't know his background whatsoever. So he is, in essence, the author is saying, the priest forever, just like our priest, prophet, priest, and king, Jesus, who is forever. And this man had nothing um, to bring of any lineage or whatever might be, and it was the superior blessing the inferior, meaning that, uh, that Abram from the Lord blesses the inferior, and it is the same way our God does to us. And as he receives this, um, we realize very clearly that this priest is the precursor to Christ, Melchizedek. And that is for us to remember as we hear these next few words. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessary change in the law as well. For the one who has these things spoken belonged to another tribe, from which one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and the connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but the power of the of an indestructible life. For as witness of him from Psalm 110 verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is another example of how Scripture interprets Scripture. Psalm 110 tells of this priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, meaning that this priest would come almost out of nowhere. (laughs) And this priest would be forever as Melchizedek, we would say, is as well, even though we know full well that Melchizedek would have died, um, but we don't hear of it. That is where all of this comes together, that this Melchizedek, was pointing us to Christ. That this priest, out of nowhere, would be pointing to the greater priest. Because if you think about when Jesus was working and and dealing with the temple workers, with the Pharisees and Sadducees, they would continually go back and speak about how they were in the lineage of Abraham. That their lineage is what they would cling to but as we know from Romans chapter 4, it is, uh, it is our kingdom, our lineage goes back to Abraham by faith. That Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And the same thing for us, that when we in faith are counted as righteous, we are part of the lineage of Abraham. Not by circumcision, not by works so that any man may boast but simply by faith. So once again, 
This is where we see Jesus in Genesis. And that would be a fascinating study in itself. I'd be fascinated to see if, if uh, I have to look this up. I mean, if you are listeners, find this, look it up as well. Is Jesus in Genesis, and let's see all the references where we're able to see Jesus in Genesis. Now, we, one, of the, one of the blessings we had in Genesis chapter 4 with a study of Mark Jasa, Pastor Mark Jasa from California, is really, I do wonder sometimes if, we think, well, you can't find Jesus, you can find Jesus too much almost in the Old Testament. And then you're kind of, oh, you're probably right, we don't need to go there. Well, let's let's not stop, <laughs> let's not try to stop finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Because here specifically, Melchizedek, only a few verses, proclaimed again in Psalm 110, is now proclaimed again in Genesis. And what a greater what greater thing is there to read the Bible and to continually find our prophet, priest, and kin, our Lord Jesus Christ, in every single page? So, he gives a tithe of everything. Verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord Yahweh, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say that I have made Abram rich. Now here's a scenario. The king of Sodom comes in, doesn't say that he gave a tenth, probably not true, but he said, give me the people, give me my people but you can have all the goods, you can have all the riches, you can have all the food, you can have all the, the harvest, you can have all of those things. Just give me the people. But Abram knows full well that there'd be a later time, <laughs> a later time that he would say, you know what, I gave you this good deal. And then, then you, you took all those possessions, so you owe me. This is kind of how we operate as human beings. I give you this, you give me that. And this is where the covenantal language that we'll hear throughout the Old Testament especially, that he says, I will make a covenant with you, which we will see here and just coming up here in chapter 15. That covenant with God is a one-way street. The Lord makes a covenant with him that his promises would be true, that his name would be great, and that, and that through faith, which is also a gift from the Lord, that he would bring, give him his righteousness. And here, he was making a covenant to say, give me your people, you keep the rest. And that could be brought back to him later on. But also, the reason why he did this is not for the sake of more power, more possessions. It's clear he has plenty of possessions. The crazy thing is he already gave 10% away, so he could easily do the math. I mean, how many times do you do this kind of math where you're like, okay, all right, so if I give that 10% away, then I'm gonna then then I'm gonna get it somewhere else. So someone's gonna give me a gift or whatever it might be. And then how tempting is it to receive those other gifts and to kind of say, see, I made up for the gift I just gave. All right, thanks be to God. I everything is good. So he could have easily done that. I've gave 10%. You know, if, if Abraham in today's world had hundred thousand dollars, gave away ten thousand dollars, and now the king of Sodom is saying, hey. How about you? <laughs> it's crazy. How about you? I'll give you basically $10,000 of stuff right now, so you're good to go. But he doesn't do that. He makes sure um, that he uh, gives it back to his people. 
knowing full well that this king of Sodom was not necessarily a king of righteousness, <laughs> but a king of destruction or of evil in the town of burning. And we say later on that this was not necessarily a good transaction, as if the king of Sodom received this and then says later, you know, oh, I'm going to repent and believe in the Lord and, and I'll find at least 10 righteous people in the community. He doesn't have them. But Abram says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord Yahweh, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. This goes back to Psalm 24, verse 1. You know, the, the earth and the universe is, is his. And that's good for us to remember that all of this is his. So how can we be generous? For people will say, I have made Abram rich. But the reality is that we know that with those possessions comes other issues. Verse 24. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anar, Askol, and Mamre take their share. So he distributes it accordingly among God's people, his family, and others. And this is something for us to remember too. How can we be generous among our, um, among our family, among our church, and among others? And actually right now, I would like to go back to Hebrews chapter 7 because when we look at Hebrews chapter 7, we go to verse 21 and 22 because when it speaks about this Melchizedek, we're reminded to be generous, we're reminded of the priestly lineage that is there and it's different, but we're reminded also that we can speak this way, that this Jesus is a better covenant than the Old Testament. And I think this is important for us as we look at our generosity, we look at what we do in faith, because we can get to this, this reality <laughs> that we can say, okay, I've gotten to 10%, I'm good. Or now I go to church, I'm good. Uh, I, I have, I've, I've reached the pinnacle. I've done what I can do. I've fought the good fight, if you will, as Paul says towards the end of his life. And we can then become not apathetic. Like what, what the role of the Christian life is not to say, oh my gosh, I'm not motivated anymore. Um, what can I do to get motivated? No, it's about your conscience realizing that you are good with the Lord. And what that requires is that when we become, um, apathetic is not the word, but, but when we become as one who is unable to be, uh, you know, doing the things that God has called us to do, what we do is not try to figure out how to be more motivated, but we go back to Christ. So go back to Hebrews chapter 7. I love going back to this because, by the way, Hebrews is probably one of my favorite books. And he goes to verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So two things as we look at this relationship of Abram and Melchizedek. It is something, first of all, that that priest reality of those days and our reality today is different because we have Jesus. 
He is a more a better guarantee of a better covenant. So Jesus is better than Melchizedek. Jesus is better than Abraham. If you want to keep going down the line, Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Jacob and, and all of the 12 tribes of Israel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all these folks. Jesus is better than all of them. So may we always keep that in mind that this covenant that the Lord made with Abraham, it's better because it's with Jesus. And then it tells us this very important piece. Melchizedek was a man of God that eventually died. Jesus is the one who lives forever. The alleluias continue this Pentecost season. It is the resurrection that we still have today. And not Jesus is not sitting up there in heaven doing nothing, but he continues to pray. This is an important aspect, and I, to me, it's always mind-boggling to think about what this fully means. But it, it, it reminds us that Jesus is continually active in prayer to God the Father on our behalf. How does that work? I'm not exactly sure. How does this happen? I'm not exactly sure. But the strength that we have when we realize that our family and our church family and other people are bringing us to the feet of Christ in prayer, just think about this. Jesus, at the same time, is praying for you as well. And that is a powerful, powerful thing because he is the better covenant, that he is the the only covenant that will matter for us, and he is the one and source of our salvation. So as I usually ask my guests at this stage, how would you summarize our text and encourage our listeners? Here's what I would say. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, because Jesus says, I have overcome the world. With this, he will bless, bless you through the proclaimed word. Go and receive this proclaimed word. I heard a pastor recently say that he had just retired and he started going to a a church and he said, you know what? I even know that I'll be blessed if I don't like the preacher because that preacher is preaching the word of God. May we do the same. May we receive those words as Abram received that blessing from Melchizedek. And may we be generous as our Lord Jesus has been overflowing with generosity to us. So I encourage you, keep praying, keep receiving, keep giving, for as a Lord Jesus who keeps giving and praying for you. I'm your host, Brady Finneran, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hand.